All right, the youth can be dismissed for Sunday school. The rest of us, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one somewhere on a chair within reach. Definitely grab one uh, so you can follow along with our study in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. And as you're turning there, welcome to everyone. Good to see you. Good to have you here, especially if you're newer or passing through or visiting. Uh, Thank you for gathering with us. It's a joy to have you. And welcome to the newlyweds, Mr. Ryan and Miss Julie. You're back quick. I was, yeah. Good to see you all. Uh, We are in a verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. Um, If you're newer with us, we we do hear what's called expository preaching, which is to say we just pick uh, whole books of the Bible and go verse-by-verse through them. And we happen to find ourselves in the eighth chapter of Romans. God has revealed himself in the pages of Scripture and in Scripture, uh, the God of the universe, the only God, specifies how he is and is not to be worshipped. It's not up to us to decide that. God spells it out. And one way he commands us to worship him is through the hearing and the study of his word through the expositional, expositional preaching of the word. And so we take unrushed time during this time of our worship gathering and attempt to do so by God's grace for his glory and for the upbuilding of his people. Romans chapter 8. I think it's safe to say that most people, if not all, like the idea of assurance, guarantee, We have in the world, you have to sign contracts. When you hire someone to, say, do work on your house or whatever it might be, you need to know it's going to be done a certain way, according to certain codes, a certain level of excellence. And that's right, it's good. And there are guarantees, contracts you sign. I pay you this, you need to do this work up to code. A million other things, other examples we could cite. People like assurance. And when it comes to eternal things, I think it's the same. That if you have, if you're a regenerate believer here today, and your faith is in Christ, most, if you talk to, to individuals, most if not all believers at some point, have wrestled with the idea of assurance. Not assurance with some work being done on their home, but assurance of salvation. Am I saved? Many of us have wondered, I've wondered, gone through some difficult times. I remember in in seminary many years ago, my first year of seminary, really wrestling with assurance. I profess Christ, I've put my faith in the Son of God, I know I'm a sinner, I know I could never get to heaven by my works, but why am I struggling with this, with doubts and with assurance? Has that ever been you? It's very normal. Nothing is wrong with you, nor your faith, if that has happened. Super normal. 
It's not a bad thing. It actually can be healthy. It often means your conscience is working. It often means you actually care about eternal things. It's, it's the person who never wrestles with this, who says, oh, I'm, I'm great, no issues in my life, never struggle with assurance. Uh, that might be cause for concern. If you have wondered about assurance, it probably means you're sensitive to God's word. You care about God and Christ, your relationship with him, life's most important issues, eternity, eternal life. And as, as we've just begun a, a new chapter in Romans, this is something of what we're going to see, the issue of assurance, the Holy Spirit and assurance. Romans 6 through 8 talks about the issue of sanctification, just that big theological term we, we throw around often. We have been since chapter 6 in Romans. Paul is talking about, okay, great, you're, you're saved. Now, now what? It's not always all hunky-dory and easy. There's a battle. God is growing you. That's what sanctification means. And, and part of what he wants to do in sanctification through the Holy Spirit is address this issue of assurance. That's much of what we're going to see in chapter 8. And, and in today's passage, we've, we've studied, we dug into just verse 1 last week, spent our entire study on it. And we're sort of setting sail from there to just start talking about the Holy Spirit and assurance of salvation. How does this work in the regenerate believer? It is a sacred topic. During the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, this was a, a truth of, of God's word that had been stuffed under the darkness of Romanism and heresy for many centuries. People had no assurance. If going to heaven depends on your works, of course you're not going to have assurance. How will you ever know if I've done enough works? You can't know. And your conscience, if it's functioning in a healthy manner, it won't let you know. And as the reformers begin to study scripture again, they rediscovered, they didn't invent, very important, they did not invent this, God invented it and brought to light the, the sacred truth of assurance of salvation. So would that follow along as I read? I'm actually going to start in verse 24 of chapter 7, a little bit of context, landscape where we're at here in the text, and I'll read through verse 8 of chapter 8. Romans 7, verse 24, God's inspired, inerrant, sufficient word reads, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Chapter 8, verse 1, therefore, there is now no, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. This is the reading of God's inerrant word. Sinclair Ferguson has rightly said, the word of God never shrinks you intellectually or emotionally. It does the opposite in every way. It enlarges you emotionally and certainly intellectually. And this is emphatically the case in this chapter, which theologians and pastors for centuries have recognized Romans chapter 8 as the greatest chapter in the Bible. Some have said that if Romans is a ring, Romans 8 is like the stone, the giant stone in that ring. God gave us this unspeakably important book through the pen of the Apostle Paul sometime mid-50s-ish first century, originally written to people who were struggling with the gospel and salvation assurance, how to know if when I exit this life, and that'll be soon for all of us, it goes by fast, how to know if when I enter eternity, I will stand right with God and nothing else matters ultimately but that. How to know how that works, how to know how to have assurance of that, that we're not playing games with God, but that we've submitted to his word in the gospel. Romans is about the gospel. Chapter one through three told us, in effect, look, human race, you're not as great as you think you are. (laughs) You're You have fallen short of God's law, way short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the latter part of Romans 3 to 5 is fantastic news, which was sort of restated in a wonderful way in verse 1 of chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. For those, not everybody in the world, only those, verse 1, who are in Christ Jesus, And that is the good news. What the human race could not do, nobody could get themselves to heaven. Nobody could justify themselves. Nobody could work themselves into God's favor. We're condemned naturally. Hence why verse 1 says, there is now no condemnation. God has done it. The gospel is the good news of what God has done, not not what we have done. The good news of Jesus Christ, which we sang about just previously, is not about celebrating man's accomplishments and giving giving a spiritual Gatorade dumping to man. It's not about that. It's about what Christ has done in his perfect sinless life, his death on the cross for us and resurrection. And so then Romans 6 through 8 is wrestling with, okay, now what? That's not the end of the matter. It's the beginning. Just as when a baby is born, that's not the end of its life. That's the beginning. So when a believer is born again and becomes a Christian, that's not the end of the matter, just the beginning. And there's this sanctification. There's a wrestling. You saw that wrestling in verse 24 
of Romans 7 that we just read. Paul's, he's, this is a mature believer in Romans 7, wretched man that I am. It's a battle. Now, this, today's study is going to be somewhat introductory on the Holy Spirit and assurance. There's a lot to get to. The Holy Spirit has only been mentioned about three or four times in the book of Romans up until now. And I mean, that's, that's 186 verses that we've covered. However, he will now, from verse 2 through chapter 8, and chapter 8 all the way to verse, 13, uh, verse 14, he's going to be mentioned about 14 times. Verse 17, excuse me. Verse 2 to verse 17, he'll be mentioned about 14 times. To tell us about how the, what the Holy Spirit's role is in the life and the believer. This is a majorly majorly confused issue in evangelicalism in our day, and, and unnecessarily so. There has been no small amount of error and confusion about who the Holy Spirit is, what he does, how he functions, not it, how he functions in the life of the regenerate believer. This is a critical topic. There's a lot of unhelpful things, to put it lightly, that are said and thought of about the Holy Spirit. And so this chapter is a gift to us, both to give us assurance of salvation, those of us who are regenerate, and to clarify this great, unspeakably precious gift of the Holy Spirit and the life of the believer. Who is he? What does he do? Romans 8 is going to talk about what it means to be led by the Spirit. Maybe you've heard that said, or, or you've said it yourself, the Holy Spirit is leading me to insert blank. Romans 8 is going to tell us what actually does it look like for the Holy Spirit to lead somebody, and when it doesn't. There'll be this issue in Romans 8, 26, plus or minus of like groaning too deep for words in the Holy Spirit. What is that? It's an issue that has experienced no small amount of error. How does he operate in the believer? Well, one of the things he does that we're going to see today is he gives this, bre- this, this blessed gift of assurance. And nothing better is, there's nothing better than to have assurance of salvation. Not a fake assurance, but a true assurance. Now, before we dig into verse 2 to 4, just to kind of maybe a reminder for some of us or newer for, for others, a couple things I want us to look at. Who is the Holy Spirit? And from a 37,000 foot view, who is he and what does he do? And it's important that as we, as we address this, we address it and answer these questions from scripture and not our subjective opinions or ideas. But what does God say about himself? Now, this isn't a topic in answering who the Holy Spirit is that we could address in entirety. Sinclair Fergus, again, he has rightly said that the, the, the 17th century Puritan John Owen referred, he referred to John Calvin as, quote, the theologian of the Holy Spirit, end quote. And that is absolutely true. However, I think it could also be said that John Owen, the 17th century Puritan, giant of the faith, was also a theologian of the Holy Spirit. Depending on which version you get, John Owen wrote a 1,000-page book on the Holy Spirit. 
And that's not likely a work whose exegetical and theological competency is going to be matched in our day. Matter of fact, that, makes, that should make evangelicalism blush a little bit. It's a magnificent work. Point being, there's a lot we could observe in Scripture from the Holy Spirit. Just a couple of things, big picture. Who is he? He is the third person of the triune God. The true God is three in one, hence the term triune or trinity. Tri and unity. He is not three gods. Very important. Sometimes when you talk to your friends who maybe are from another uh, faith or whatever, they say, well, you're polytheists. We're not polytheists. One God three persons. And others will say, well, that's a logical contradiction. No, because we're not saying there are three gods and one God. That would be a logical contradiction. We're saying one God, three persons. How that works exactly, we don't know. We're not God. We would expect to run into things that we can't fully put in our little brains. He's the third person, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, eternally existing, Each of the persons of the Godhead are deity, are God. Each of them individually possess all the essential essential attributes of deity, such that you you would be God. They are all omniscient, all-knowing. They know everything. The Spirit is omniscient. Isaiah 40, verse 13. The Holy Spirit is omnipotent, all-powerful, which if if you're God, you got to be all-powerful. 1 Peter 4.14, the Holy Spirit is also omnipresent, everywhere, always, simultaneously, not circumscribed anywhere like we are. Psalm 139, verse 7 and following. You got to be omnipresent if you're God. He is also eternal, Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 9.14, the Holy Spirit is eternal. What's What's the point of all this? The point is to remind us that the Holy Spirit is truly God, just like God the Son and God the Father. The Holy Spirit was present at creation, Genesis 1 tells us. So, we were talking in membership class this morning at the inauguration of President Barack Obama. Gene Robinson, he he did the opening prayer. He was the first... I think the first openly homosexual clergy in professing Christendom. And he started out his prayer this way. To the God of our own understanding. And then continued to pray. There's a catastrophic problem with that. Because the God of our own understanding is an idol. That's just a myth. That's just something we make up according to our emotions. That's a nothing. Right? The true God reveals himself objectively regardless of what we think in Scripture. And it's important to him that we think of him accordingly. There have been many heresies about the Holy Spirit. Just briefly, a little history here. Sabellianism, Sabellianism or modalism is one where the Holy Spirit was thought of as, well, like the Trinity is different modes of God, like Father, Son, and Spirit are different ways that God shows himself depending on kind of what mood he is in. If he's in the spirit mood, spirit. That's a heresy. And the church rightly dealt with it in the second and the third century. Now, they're each individual persons, one God. 
Arianism, another heresy, which is kind of like, it's kind of like our modern day Jehovah Witnesses, the Watchtower. Hi, we're from the Watchtower. Arianism is ancient Watchtowerism, where they denied the deity of Christ. They also denied the deity of the Holy Spirit. And the church rightly condemned those issues at the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople in the 4th century. In any case, sometimes people might think, oh, why all the fuss about all these doctrines and councils and all this stuff, all these heady points, who cares? Because, beloved, God is unfathomably great. He's a great God. I mean, you look at those Tetons and the stars above them at night and think that God spoke them into existence. You can speak and stuff might happen, but it usually doesn't. You know, you tell someone, hey, go here. And they're like, no, what are you, no I'm not going to do that. Right? We're not, we're not as great as God. He's a great God of unfathomable love and majesty and glory. And the greatest duty of the creature is to bring him glory. And to worship him acceptably which first involves thinking of him correctly. This is, this is why Psalm 1 is the first psalm. The book of Psalms was Israel's hymn book. And it starts out with the word of God. We're, we're putting it in our mind because right doctrine, scripture informs right worship. Imagine a husband who... He, he took his wife out for a birthday dinner, tells her, I love you, honey. A few days later, she notices an odd thing on his desk. It's an odd thing. It's a picture. Picture frame with a picture. And the picture is of a woman, but it's not his wife. And it's not his daughter. And like, it's not his mom or his grandma or anyone else. It's a woman in the picture who is the same age as his wife, same height as his wife, same color hair as his wife, but it's a different woman altogether. And she says one day, so, uh, hey, honey, who, who's that on your desk? And he says, oh, sweetheart, that's you. I know it's not exactly you. Same age, same height, same hair color. The other difference is, well, and, uh, these are kind of things that I like to think of you as. That's not going to sit well. She says, well, uh, you know, that, that's a problem, sweetheart, because he says, oh, no, don't be all legalistic. We don't have to, like, be all particular about doctrine and, be, and who you are and be legalistic about you. And it's someone who's close to you. She, she will not be okay with that, nor, nor should she. Because though he may think of her with some accuracy, the differences are not realities about his actual wife, but another woman he imagines, and this is a severe problem. Similarly, but more important, when it comes to thinking about the true God, this is not a God of our own understanding, or a God that I like to think of him as. 
We're not talking about a human being, but God. God the Father, God the Son, the Spirit, three in one. The Holy Spirit is eternal God, just as the Son and the Father who's deserving of all honor and biblical thinking. Number two, so that's kind of who he is. Briefly, what are some things that he do, that he does? In relation to the believer, Scripture teaches there are about 30 things that he does. I just want to mention a couple real quick. 30. Just a couple. Number one, he convicts. And I know you get nervous if I don't have a verse backing up what I say, as you should. John 16, 8 through 11, Jesus said the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to convict. What does this mean? Out of love, he shows us, oh, I'm not a hero. I'm not awesome. I've fallen short. I need a savior to bring us to Christ. Someone, this is why someone who previously used to smirk a grin when they, when they tied one on or got away with some sin, when the spirit comes into life, they don't smirk anymore. It's an area of grief and confession and thankfulness for Jesus. Second, the Holy Spirit regenerates. He regenerates. This is probably one of the most important things to understand about him. He regenerates. Turn to John chapter 3, if you would. Keep your, keep your pencil in Romans 8. John chapter 3. Let's turn back a few books. John 3, regeneration is something that the Holy Spirit does in every single person who actually, who becomes a believer and who goes to heaven by God's grace, by the free mercy, the grace of God. And regeneration is what explains in in, in that new believer all the new desires they have. Like the Bible used to be kind of weird and boring. You know, I'd rather look at my Insta chat or whatever and, and other goofy things. But it's like when the Holy Spirit, when you're saved, it's like this, this Bible becomes something that I just want to soak up and have new desires. I, I want to honor God even though I still struggle, and we always will. And Jesus is having a chit-chat with Nicodemus one day, and he talks about regeneration. Let's start in verse 3. Nicodemus comes to him and, you know, his rabbi, like, wow, you do some pretty cool things. And then Jesus kind of like takes a hard turn and says, said to him, verse 3, John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. So Jesus just gets right in his kitchen immediately. He wants to talk about, you know, these cool miracles you've done. And Jesus just says, let's talk about whether you're saved and what it means to be. Verse 4. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Verse 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The idea of born of water there, it's a little tricky. Probably the idea of, of, an Ezekiel, of in Ezekiel, John is considered sometimes the New Testament theologian of Ezekiel, this idea that the water that cleanses us symbolically, metaphorically, the washing away of sins. So unless your sins are washed away by the new birth of the Spirit, you can't go to heaven is probably what's happening there. Verse 6, that which has been born of the flesh is flesh. In other words, biological birth, you're, you're a human. But that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. 
Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But do not, do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Interesting. This is a critical passage to understand salvation and the Spirit, regeneration. A couple of quick things here. We see we cannot control the Holy Spirit. Jesus uses the illustration of wind. You can't control wind. Sometimes we want to. Let's bring a bigger storm in. It's been, we haven't had enough snow this winter. You know, February comes. You can't do that. And neither can you control the Holy Spirit. He's sovereign. Second, we see from here, there is a power when the Holy Spirit comes into an individual's life. The wind blows. The Spirit gives, gives this new life. When the Spirit, third, when the Spirit enters someone's life, we see here, John 3, 3 to 8, there is life instantaneously. Six times the word born. Not counting the time when Nicodemus says it. Six times the word born is in verse 3 to 8, talking about birth, life. This is regeneration. The Spirit gives life when someone is saved and becomes a Christian. So that's another metaphor, birth. The reason that has to happen is because as we studied in Romans 5, 12 and following, the human race is naturally born in the line of who? Adam. Which is why we're cursed. We're fallen. And so you got to get born out of Adam somehow and born into salvation. You can't do that. That's the point of the birth illustration. You can't cause yourself to be born again. To lift yourself up out of Adam and out of sin and into Christ. The, Spirit, the Holy Spirit has to do that. Hence why regeneration is the single greatest miracle on earth that happens. Far greater than splitting the Red Sea. Than giving physical sight to the blind. The miracle of becoming a Christian. In other words, regeneration. Death spiritually to life. Ephesians 2.4. The sovereignty of the Spirit, we can't control him. He brings life. Turn over to Titus 3 now, almost to the end of your Bible, before the book of Hebrews. Philemon after Timothy, Titus. One more verse I want us to look at as it concerns regeneration. Titus chapter 3. Titus 3, 3, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. Titus 3.3, 3, look there. Paul says, We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. He's talking about the, the, the person before they're saved. It's dead. But, verse 4, when the kindness, notice it, say, it doesn't say, but when we got all moral and decided to have our own works, no, when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which you have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing, how? How did that happen? The washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That word regeneration, new life, reborn is the idea. The power of the Holy Spirit Instantly coming upon the previously dead sinner in Adam, giving them instantly, 
life, not on the basis of the person's work, but the sovereign grace of God, such they live now and they have a heart for God, not perfectly, but they're alive. This is a Christian without which a person is not yet and can become one through faith in Christ. We understand that there's a thing called cultural Christianity. Like this is popular in the South, right? When, when I came to faith in Christ, I, I knew nothing about this. You know, when I came to Wyoming, I came East. I got saved here decades ago. I hadn't heard of that. Why would someone want to be a cultural Christian? Where I came from, you're laughed at. You're a wacko if you're a Christian. But I heard of this cultural thing where, yeah, people will say that and mark a box on a census, profess that because of different cultural pressure or reward or whatever. Regeneration is what delineates false, the idea of a false believer, cultural, Christian only, and checking a box only, and true life, spiritual life, regeneration. This is the most important thing I think we could say the Spirit does, regeneration. Which is why I think in our day with all the confusion, especially cultural Christianity, it's, pref- it's preferable to say regenerate as opposed to like Christian or believer sometimes. Not always. Depends on the conversation, the context. Spirit regenerates. Third, the Spirit indwells. The Holy Spirit indwells. First Corinthians 6, 9 and later Romans 8, 9 to 13. He indwells, meaning he comes to reside in the heart of that new believer permanently. That's good stuff. He'll never leave. Fourth, he comforts. He comforts those he indwells. Jesus said in John chapter 14, 26, the the helper, some translations in John 14, 26 will render helper the comforter. The Greek word paraclete is the idea has the idea of, of, a very, uh, of the idea of one who helps by consoling, by comforting, by encouraging. This is what the Holy Spirit does. Sometimes you experience that comfort, supernatural comfort and struggle. You have some battles in your life, speed bumps, and, and, and the Spirit of God impresses Scripture to your mind, and you have this, this, this comfort in, in the struggle. That's, that's the Holy Spirit. Fifth, the Spirit seals. He seals. Seals the believer or generation. Ephesians 4, 1, 13 to 14, Paul says, having believed, belief is essential, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. That word seal was used in ancient times to describe like an official stamp of authentication from maybe a king who would say this thing, this letter, whatever it was, is mine. It's, I have sovereignty over it, ownership, possession, and no one can take it away from me. Isn't that comforting? The king of the universe, when you just fall down in faith on Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit seals you as if to say, property of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And God never goes back on his promises, which is why the idea of losing your salvation is garbage. It's foolishness. We receive forgiveness, sealing life, and it's permanent. 
And then six, one more thing here, the Spirit sanctifies. He sanctifies. First Peter 1, 2, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, having regenerated us and dwelling us after convicting, right, bringing us to our need for the Savior, sealing, he sanctifies. This is the daily process, not the instantaneous process. The second we put faith in Christ, no condemnation, we stand as righteous before God the Father as Christ stands, but we don't walk and live before God the Father as righteous as Christ did. Sanctification begins that process of change. If you go to the, however you pronounce it, Academia Galleria, whatever it is, in Florence, Italy, had the privilege of being there a couple months ago with Richard, and you see Michelangelo's David statue. Big old piece of marble. Well done one, for that matter. And Michelangelo started that as a block of marble. And it took him three years, just gently chiseling away, to get David, or his idea of David. Three years, every day. Can you imagine? Three years. That's something of what sanctification is, isn't it? We start not like Christ at all. And God, in his sovereignty, just decides to do it slowly. To sanctify us into the image of Jesus Christ. So then, with that as an introduction on the Holy Spirit, into the text we go. Romans 8, let's turn back there if you're not back there already. Romans 8, the chapter began with, I mean, a a glorious anthem, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. We saw there the predicament of condemnation and the provision of justification. And this is, this is like a, a, a radical grace of God. That believers of old, saints of old, rejoiced in this. I mean, someone like Abraham, who did what he did to Sarah, Genesis 12, Genesis 20. And he would hear, there is therefore now no condemnation. That can only be done if someone else deals and dies for your sin, as Christ would 2,000 years after Abraham lived. And then someone like King David, after what he does, right? 2 Samuel 11, with, with Bathsheba and her husband. And David would hear, there is therefore now no condemnation. And, and Rahab, Joshua 2, her colorful life. And the spies come and she puts faith in Yahweh. There is therefore now no condemnation. And the, the apostle Peter, as they're about to nail Jesus to a cross, after he's been whipped, Peter's like, I don't know that guy. I don't know who he is. And he weeps, he denies the Savior And he would hear, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you and I, with the many, not few, sins that we have battled with, by the grace of God, through faith alone in Christ alone, we can hear and know there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus.
You will never hear a better thing than that. And so the text proceeds. The Holy Spirit and assurance. We don't have a lot of time, but just a few more minutes here to kind of dip our toes into this. So in verse 2 to 4, in verses 2 to 4, we're going to see three ways, three ways that the Holy Spirit gives assurance to the person who has experienced verse 1. And only that person, only the person who has fallen down, as it were, with an empty hands and a surrendered heart to Jesus Christ and said, said, I know I am condemned in my sin. I know I have failed to keep your law, O God, in attitude and action and thought, word, and deed. And so I look to Jesus Christ, his death, his his crucifixion and resurrection alone, and and you hear no condemnation. So for that person... Three ways the Holy Spirit gives assurance of salvation to the regenerate believer. Three ways. Number one is this. The Holy Spirit gives assurance to the regenerate believer, number one, by the freedom, the freedom that the Spirit gives. The freedom that the Spirit gives. Verse two. The freedom he gives. Look at verse two. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. What's going on there? The spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is called by other names like here. Right? Jesus called him the the helper, the comforter. This, of course, refers to the Holy Spirit because there is no other spirit who gives life, eternal life, and sets free. Now, the, the wording here is a little kind of somewhat tangled upon first inspection. Let's we'll kind of untangle it here. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. The word law there of the spirit of life, it's not talking about like a moral law, like God's commandments. It's used in the sense of maybe the way that we say like the laws of physics, right? How something works or the law of gravity, how a thing works how something functions. So it's speaking of one way in which the Holy Spirit, how he functions in the believer. He sets us free from the law or the working of sin and death. What is that talking about? Christians still die. They still sin. What, what, what is meant by that? Up until now, you, you have seen, if you've been with us in Romans, Romans has mentioned about 10 times that sin produces death. The reason the human race dies is not because of Darwinian gradualism, but because of sin. God said way back in Genesis 2.17, look, if you sin, this thing called death is going to enter the world, and it did, because we did. It leads to death. Sin miss, it means missing the moral bullseye. God's moral bullseye, you miss it, you sin, death then kicks into gear. Sometimes, sometimes scientists are trying to figure out what is the mechanism of the, the, the biological mechanism of aging, of aging. And praise God they're doing that. People a million times smarter than me. But really, ultimately, it's sin that's, that, that kills us. But how are we set free from this? What does that mean? Again, remember, sin leads to death. Prior to life in Christ, I celebrated sin. The world celebrates to sin. But the world needs to know 
The, the, the end point of that, the trajectory of sin is death. I don't care what the world says, how many people celebrate it, its end is death, eternal death, spiritual death. However, set free. The Spirit sets us free. That Greek word there is, means the idea of it. Cause, to cause someone to be released from something from which they cannot release themselves. And the Spirit does this. Right? Christ died setting us free from the penalty of sin, hell, no condemnation. He provides atonement. But the Holy Spirit is the one who gives life, which then sets us free from otherwise an otherwise inescapable power of the tyranny of sin, leading us ultimately to eternal death, which it had over us before Christ. He sets us free. And, and the verb tense of that, of that word, set free, it's a, it's a wonderful tense in the Greek. It means a, a, a definitive, decisive action in the past that needs and has no repetition in the future. One time accomplished indefinitely. There's no going back for the spirit indwelt believer to the tyranny of sin, ruled by sin, and ultimately into death. No going back. That's why he's called the spirit of life. He gives that life so we're hatched out of sin. John 6, 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. So again, he turns on the lights. It's simple. He turns on the lights. He gives the heart to know God. But again, we're fresh out of Romans 7, 14 to 25, where Paul is saying, I, I still do stuff I hate. Is this a contradiction? No. Right? In that, in that passage, the mature believer is struggling with sinful thoughts and still wrestling with temptations. That's normal because Satan is trying to lure you back into death, what the Spirit has freed you from. However, the wrestling itself is evidence that the Holy Spirit has landed in your heart and you don't want to go back to temptation. And that he's pulling you away from it, though it's hard and slow sometimes. Right, again, it's like, the, it's like a caterpillar that's crawled into its cocoon. And it seems like it's dead for a while. Right, and then eventually after a week or two weeks or whatever it is, slowly it starts to wrestle and it hatches. And it is a major, scientists say it's a major wrestling match for that now it's a butterfly to get out of the cocoon and get its wings stretched out. That's the believer, right? The sign that that caterpillar, once again, now a butterfly, is wrestling and is hatching out of the cocoon. It's struggling. That's a sign of life. It's alive. It's moving. It's hatching. It's slow, right? It probably is thinking, this is, I don't like this right now. I got to get out of this thing. And it takes a long time. It's exhausting. That's a picture of the believer in Romans 7, 14 to 25. Because the Spirit has given us life, the sin we once loved and thirsted for, we're wrestling out of it. Struggle. Painful, tiresome. But life is there. The Spirit has landed and He's, and he's set us free. And the wrestle is not to be interpreted as that you're in, you're in death. You love your sin, you're still in your sin. It's not to be interpreted that way. But by God's grace, just change his life. 
so much more to study, so little time. Uh, let's do number two, part of number two. Number two, the Holy Spirit gives assurance by, number two, the reminder of the gospel. The reminder of the gospel, verse three. The Holy Spirit likes you to be reminded and think often of the gospel. Look at verse 3. For what the law, now talking about God's commandments, what the law could not do, because it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Yes, he did. Here's the thing about the Holy Spirit that we have to think about him if we're going to think correctly about him. He really wants you to look at Jesus. The Holy Spirit wants to glorify Jesus. Jesus even said this in John chapter 16, verse 14. Jesus said, he, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. He will glorify me. He will put me in lights. He'll want to make a big deal out of me, not himself. J.I. Packer rightly said, the Holy Spirit is like floodlights on a beautiful building at night. You don't see the floodlights. You see what the floodlights do. They're down in the bushes. Beautiful building is lit up. You see the beauty and the architecture of it, the contours, because the Holy Spirit wants to glorify Christ, not itself, not himself, excuse me. should never say itself. The Spirit is like that. He wants our eyes to be on him. Hebrews 12, talking about the Christian life is hard. The, the, the writer of Hebrews says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And he goes on in verse 3 to say, for consider him, consider Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you don't go, grow weary and want to throw in the towel. Notice that verse doesn't say, run the race fixing our eyes on the Holy Spirit. But notice verse 3 doesn't say, consider the Holy Spirit so that you don't grow weary. It doesn't say that at all. The Holy Spirit floodlights Jesus. He wants you to fix your eyes on him. There's no verse that tells us, keep your eyes on the Holy Spirit so you don't grow weary. Now, the Holy Spirit wants to, like, okay, you know, put your gaze here. When I was a little kid, my, my, you know, my mom, you know, I, I had, like, my attention span was no attention span. My, my mom would have to, like, turn my head. Okay, look back here. Look over here. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Look at Jesus. Keep your eyes focused on him. Look at him. Look at yourself. Forget about yourself. We sin. We struggle. We're coming out of the cocoon. God's, chis God's chiseling us. Keep your eyes on the Holy Spirit. On Christ, by the Holy Spirit, I should say, excuse me. So Romans 8.3 is a reminder. It's like Paul, as soon as he's talking about the Spirit, boom, he goes back to the gospel. Why does he do that? Because the Holy Spirit, it's a reminder. The Holy Spirit likes Jesus a lot and wants you 
to be fixed on him. So it's like, we dip our toes into the doctrine of the spirit. Nope, come back to the cross. Right, verse three, and he starts talking about the cross again. It's a reminder. What the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, the law, the commandments, the thou shalt, the thou shalt nots, all summed up in, you need, you need to love God perfectly in your attitude, your thought, your imagination, your motivation, and your deed, and you need to love people perfectly. Any wrong thought, Jesus said in Matthew 5, to 48, you, I mean, you, you deserve to go to hell, he says. It's just like, wow. What the law could not do, what the law cannot do is the law could not do what? Save you. The law cannot do two big things, three big things actually, three things the law cannot do. The law cannot give you the power to obey its demands, which every human being is commanded to. Number two, the law could not provide atonement or forgiveness for failing it. The law could not do that. And number three, the law could not regenerate you and give you new life such that you're able to know God and obey it for the first time. Three things the law cannot do. It's weak through the flesh. Right? We've said before, the law is like an x-ray machine, isn't it? Break a rib, break a toe, break something else. The x-ray can just point out, you got a problem. The x-ray is not an orthopedic surgeon. You got a problem. That's what the law does. The x-ray machine can't fix you. It just says, problem. It's weak. Where does that leave us? You need an orthopedist. Verse 3, what the law could not do, God did. I really like that. God did. The sovereign grace and the sovereign ability of our king on high, our God. God did. This tells us salvation is all God. Even the ability to believe is all God. The ability to, keep, to be kept is all God. God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. We're so out of time. It's just very important as you look at this verse, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, how important words are in the Bible. It does not say he sent his son as a sinner or sinning in the flesh, but the likeness. Jesus was not a sinner. He did not sin. Hebrews 4.15, he was perfect, but likeness as, meaning he, he was incarnate. He had a body like us. And he had to because the penalty for sin is death. And the death of a righteous, sinless substitute, only Christ has ever lived a sinless life. And God condemns sin in the flesh. What does that mean? It just means Jesus had a real body, flesh, not like a ghost. And God condemned him instead of the regenerate believer. God judged and penalized Christ instead of the one who puts faith in Jesus Christ. Substitutionary atonement, in other words. This is the only way you can be forgiven and go to heaven. I mean, think of that for a minute. That's why there's no condemnation. God the Father took his most precious possession, his own son, 
and just crushes him and condemns him. That's the only way for you and I, for us to not be condemned. If Christ is severely condemned. And how does that give us assurance? Because we know, okay, if God the Father did something that terrible to a guy that great, to Jesus, we know, we know emphatically that there is no condemnation. For you, to, you and I to think, okay, I've put my faith in Jesus and to say, well, there's, there's more of my sin I gotta pay for after the cross. That is arrogance. That's arrogance. Because you're like thinking that you're better than Christ and like Christ wasn't enough even though he was sinless and more sin has to be dealt with. That is arrogance. It's like an upside down arrogance to think, no, there's more to do after what happened to him, he who was so great. And so that gives us assurance. Perhaps not all of you, though, should have assurance if you haven't put your faith in Christ yet. Where are you with this? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Maybe you've been trusting in your works. Maybe you've had no assurance of salvation because you're not saved. Have you come all the way to Jesus Christ? Have you been maybe a cultural Christian? A pew warmer with a dead heart. Well, the great news is right here we see in verse 3, what you can't do, what the law couldn't do through you, ladder your way into God's graces, you're condemned. But the good news is God says, I've condemned my son in your place. For all who would simply fall down and reach out to Jesus Christ in empty faith, just a faith with an empty hand that says, I can never ever deal with my sin. I need Christ. And you can have that assurance of no condemnation today if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that though we all would naturally, apart from Christ, stand severely condemned because you are a holy God that you have condemned your son in the place of all who would simply repent and throw themselves on you. Thank you for the visible assurance we can have in Jesus Christ, the true spiritual assurance, if we would simply call out to you and say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I pray that if there's any of us in here this morning who have not bowed the knee to Jesus, and been saved and been forgiven of our sins, that we would call out to him today and we would know the, the beauty and the glory of no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And for the rest of us, Father, help us go forward in the power and the grace and the assurance of the Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.